potential surge in the U.S. Senate race polls, gubernatorial and Senate race campaign finances, and what has commonly become known as Falafelgate. This is the week of October 15th. Welcome to Grand Divisions. I'm your host, Joel Ebert. I'm Joey Garrison. I'm Natalie Allison. All right, guys, we got a lot to cover here in a short period of time. Uh, Joey, first off the bat, the latest thing we have seen is uh, new polling coming out of the New York Times and uh, CBS before that on the U.S. Senate race that appears to show Marsha Blackburn. Her lead is, is you know, uh, a little bit more than what we anticipated before. Yeah, the uh, New York Times-Siena poll that you referenced really raised some eyebrows because it shows that this is not much of a race right now, that it's a big lead, 14-point lead, 54 to 40 for Marsha Blackburn. And, you know, for, throughout this race, really, I would say Bredesen has been shown at leading more than, than Blackburn. But but in three polls in a row now, we had Fox News two weeks ago up five points, then CBS up eight points, and then now this uh, New York Times up 14 points. Now, there's two ways to look at it. You could look at it in the context that I just said there that shows sort of a uh, a surge, a widening of leads uh, for Marsha Blackburn, or you could say, "Hey, well, you know, there was an Axios Survey Monkey poll in July that showed Blackburn up 14, fourteen, and maybe there's possible a possibility that this is just an outlier." Now, one thing is true: there's no doubt, I think, that we've seen enough evidence that Blackburn has picked up steam of some sort in the last couple of weeks. A lot of that's because of the came as a result of the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, which I think hurt a lot of Democrats running in red states. We've seen. You know, Beto O'Rourke uh, struggling more in Texas than he had been in recent weeks. And then I think you have the, the effect of a lot of these negative ads that is just torpedoing right now. Bradison, he's getting hit by a million different sides by a ton of different groups that I detailed in a story today on outside spending. If you want to pivot to that here in a second. Uh, yeah, the, real quick, though, the, the new, new York Times poll was it's kind of a new thing, right? They, they of course, are, are renowned for their, their journalism, but they, this polling that they did has gone around the country and they've just weighed into a bunch of different races. So I think that one element of this is you kind of have to look at this and say, well, this this doesn't have a historic track record. We're not sure uh, exactly the questions that they ask, right? We we were kind of unclear on that at one point. Yeah, there are, you know, We've talked to, I think you have as well, talked about this poll with others, and there's some questions about the methodology and sort of the findings they're finding in some other other polls. But nevertheless, you know, it is two reputable organizations, New York Times and CNN, so it should, therefore should be, you know, looked at and, and, and discussed in this race. And, you know, again, what's troubling for, for Bredesen is that it comes following sort of an uptick in the margins, a 5.8 point, wow, 14 points. They have their own internal polls that they released. Yeah, what uh, did they say about Which that? is also by a reputable uh, Democratic pollster that works on a lot of campaigns over the years in Tennessee. They found that uh, if you combine... Uh, last week's uh, two different polls from last week conducted by the Bredesen campaign that Blackburn has a uh, one-point lead currently, Hmm. which that is actually, you know, that's an increase. They had Bredesen up last month by like three points or so, two or three points. So even they acknowledge there's somewhat of a bump that Blackburn has gotten in recent weeks. But they say that, uh, and again, Bob Corney, the campaign manager, spelled this out in the memo to top supporters. They say that this is a statistically dead heat. Also, the uh, Senate Conservatives Fund, am I saying the group right there? Yeah, I think that's yeah. right, yeah. 
They had a fundraising email last Friday where they called it a two-point race that's statistically tied or or too close to call, which one of those uh, labels. You know, I think the widespread outlook is that Bredesen, you know, was definitely heard over the last couple of weeks. And I think, again, largely, even though he's out in support for Kavanaugh, I still think that issue kind of emboldened and galvanized Republicans. I think that's, and we've seen a bump for, for Blackburn, but I still think it's a close race. The latest uh, polling from the New York Times, CBS Not Isolated, we anticipate more polling as the race continues to heat up. Natalie, is this something that you think people are just kind of coming home to Blackburn? Uh, that may have been skeptical? Or do you think that this, you know, we we saw her at a debate last week that she's really kind of turned the page and really gotten people uh, behind her her candidacy now? Well, there there really has been no bombshell on her part. You know, this is this, I guess this is what Ford Baker described as death by 10,000 cuts. You know, it's it's slowly eating at the support that Bredesen had. And there really, there has been no bombshell that would, you know, suddenly people suddenly realize this about Blackburn that they can get behind her this way or that way. She's always been clear about where she was. And um, I think, you know, there's just being questions being raised about Bredesen and who he is. And that seems like that's what's producing this effect. I mean, do you guys think that this is a result of, of those small cuts here and there over yeah, and I mean, over? I think the, the onslaught of negative ads that are attacking him right now has helped slowly, actually kind of quickly in the last uh, several weeks, defi- helped define him, combined with that real nationalized, partisan-fueled Kavanaugh fight that I think, I think you throw brought in over debates. some independents back to the Republican side. And the debates in there as well, where, I mean, the where most Blackburn dis- really just kind of hammered away at some of these issues that Bredesen either didn't respond to or, you know, just kind of uh, brushed him aside, essentially. The most discouraging light item, I would say, for Bredesen in that New York Times poll would be that, that he only enjoys support of independence by a 49% to 43% margin. I mean, in a lot of the other polling, he's been showing to get that group of voters independence by a two-to-one margin, but this showed it virtually tied. Bredesen's internal polls have him still up by 20 points uh, of independent voters. So I think that's where a lot of, and you know, the, the question of whether this is going to be a close race that Bredesen can win is going to be whether he is still getting those independent voters and some moderate Republicans. And the question is whether the last couple of weeks have put those back over to the Blackburn side. Of course, we'll continue to monitor uh, all of the new polling. We also have been keeping an eye on the latest campaign finance reports. Uh, we, as of this recording, have not seen either Marsha Blackburn or Phil Bredesen's uh, reports on the FEC. But Joey, uh, you've gotten a little bit of insight from uh, some background. What can you tell us about their latest reports? Again, this morning, Politico Morning Score had Blackburn raising $3.62 million. And actually, while we were just talking here, the looks like Bredesen's campaign is saying that they raised $4.62 million uh, during the third quarter. Again, those are unconfirmed by us. The, this yeah. is often how it happens where reports are due and we don't get to see them for a day and or two. It looks two. like Bredesen put in a couple million dollars alone of that, which would be consistent with kind of what's going on through the campaign. So it looks, again, if these numbers are true, we're, we're going to, again, see what was actually filed with the FEC. But it looks like Bradison enjoyed a slight fundraising edge over those last quarter, but we'll, we'll check that out. As we uh, continue to monitor that, last week I took a look at the governor's race disclosures, and we saw that as of uh, the primary, or actually the most recent, including the primary money and what's been spent by Bill Lee, the Republican uh, gubernatorial nominee, and Carl Dean, the Democrat, 
Uh, 62.1 million was the total amount spent, including 50 some odd million in the primary election itself. Uh, it's really an astounding number that has surely, uh, way more than surpassed the record for a governor's race, which was set in 2010 when governor Haslam was first running. So we'll just be again, monitoring the money race. If you haven't seen the story on that, feel free to check it out. Uh, Natalie, let's turn to something that's kind of been rocking your world of coverage lately. Uh, it's, I guess we've been coming to call it, uh, I think Eric Shelzig dubbed it the falafel kerfuffle, but I'm calling it falafel gate. Tell us what that is. Uh, how did this break and what's the initial story? Well, the story goes that, uh, Billy was, he was in East Tennessee last month and a Tennessee highway patrol trooper was talking to his bus driver, got, as he would describe in a THP report, a little too chatty and told the bus driver they were going to what he understood to be a Muslim event later that day. The the bus driver gets back on the bus. Bill Lee is there. He talks to Bill Lee and the other staffers about this. A different THP trooper, this guy's a lieutenant, overheard the conversation. And it's alleged that someone from Bill Lee's campaign, and one report it says Bill Lee himself, another reporter says a staffer, um, asked this trooper if they could somehow have a photo of Carl Dean taken at a mosque. So that led to us publishing this story saying, you know, this trooper was pulled from the detail because of this. Uh, Bill Lee says he doesn't remember it happening. Carl Dean says, BS, there are three THP officials who have submitted reports testifying that this occurred and conversations surrounding this occurred. A guy was pulled from the detail over this. Um, and it's sort of the story that that didn't die. You know, then we had the American Muslim Advisory Council coming out and saying, you know, we they're want, concerned. Sure, we're concerned. We want a governor who's going to represent all of us. And then we have Bill Lee saying he'll meet with them. And then we have Carl Dean coming on Friday and, and telling me that um, that the Department of Safety and Homeland Security, in fact, never actually informed his campaign that this happened, that he had to find out through a whistleblower. And so that's the latest. Um, you know, no action was taken against anyone except for that trooper. You forgot one little uh, addition, uh, this <laughs> this restaurant oh, at yes. the center of Why all this. Why it's called Falafel. Yeah. Yeah, so it turned out... Um, Despite, you know, in the reports, it, it said that the Lee campaign understood Carl Dean to be going to a mosque for that event. It actually was just at a downtown Knoxville falafel restaurant. That was on uh, Carl Dean's public schedule. Yes, that, it was. Okay. It was. And and what's the name of the restaurant again? It's called Yassine's Falafel and, House. And it is famous now, not because of this, but why? It is the nicest place in America for this year. Reader's Digest and Good Morning America have dubbed it as such after a, a vote, which apparently had nothing to do with... Uh, <laughs> With Falafel Gate, it was already decided. The news just happened to break the same week. So Natalie, Eric Shelzig from the Tennessee Journal, formerly of the AP, and myself all ate there recently uh, during a uh, the lead up to a gubernatorial debate. No, a Senate debate, I guess that was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we saw people eating and doing fairly normal things there. It yeah, wasn't. It, it wasn't was, a mosque. I can tell you that much. Yeah, we didn't. We didn't see any. Really, any. Praying, religious activity. Everyone was nice. This is, you know, certainly, I wouldn't say that this is the biggest deal in the world, but is this a story that uh, could, Joey or Natalie, could this spell problems for Bill Lee's candidacy? I, I spoke with, uh, with Jerry Martin. He's former U.S. attorney for the Middle District. 
of Tennessee. And he said, you know, from his perspective, he thinks Bill Lee could have committed a crime. He says this could amount to official misconduct because in the statute it says that nominees um, also are, are subject to official misconduct and hmm. um, that by asking a, a state officer to to go and do that for political purposes, that that could be it. Um, outside of that, you know, we haven't really seen any facts. And right. Martin, you know, also is a big Democrat. He supports is. Carl Dane. Yeah, yeah, he is. So, you know, it makes sense that he would say that. Talking with Bill Lee's people, it doesn't seem like this has had much of an effect on you know, the support that Bill Lee has had. The the campaign was certainly nervous about it. Though. They were nervous. <laughs> yes. So maybe they well, have. It's not a good a, look. I don't think no, but it's politically, I don't think it does anything. This doesn't as evidence, equal the Memphis meltdown or anything. Well, as evidence, Carl Dean didn't bring it up once during the debate. Sure. It happened one, you know, what, a couple of days after the story came out. Yeah. Yeah. And at, um, uh, at the know, f- I, debate the night of the story coming out, they were asked during a gaggle by, I think, TV news, you know, to talk about it. And neither of them really had anything to say. Mm. Bill Lee just said, I don't remember this. And Carl Dean said, you know, the statement I gave the Tennessean that this is disappointing, that that stands. So it, it doesn't seem like there there has been much of an effect. There was certainly the usual Twitter outrage, but I think that's maybe the extent of it. Natalie, since our last episode, there was one more governor's race debate. It sounded like from your coverage that it was fairly lame. Yeah, it's lame. <laughs> like all the governor debates have been lame compared to the Senate debates. Why? Well, I mean, what did they, what got, what was said? And well, neither and, of them come out swinging in these Well, things. there's no reason that Bill Lee would. He's, he's up, what, double digits. I'm just still continue to be perplexed why Dean doesn't get, go on the offensive. I mean, I guess they think there's nothing to win there by b- being more aggressive and and, and trying to, I don't want to say attack, but just kind of even flesh out some major, besides the Medicaid issue, there's really very little of that on, on Dean's yeah, side. And, and you'd think that if you were just to watch that debate, that, that it's a neck and neck race. And yeah. every polling that we have seen suggests it is not. So This last debate was almost strange in that, unlike the two before, it seemed like they maybe agreed on as much as they disagreed <laughs> on. They, they were highlighting their agreement over uh, how they would enforce immigration laws, that they, they believe that businesses who are found to be employing undocumented immigrants should have their business licenses taken away. They believe that the state should at least explore the idea of requiring small businesses to also have the e-verify system. They both said the state should stay out of you know, public universities contracts with, with controversial companies like Nike. They both said they supported the TBI having to investigate, uh, all fatal police shootings. They both said they were opposed, of course, to recreational marijuana being legalized, even though they, they have different views on medical and just so on and so forth. Um, really the, the main difference was highlighted when, when they got to healthcare again. Again, just, it's just not the type of behavior you usually see from a candidate who's down, who polls have showed are are down. I mean, I'm not saying, uh, that you would want to just you know have a scorched earth kind of campaign, sure. but you know usually you you would see different kind of debate behavior from a candidate who's been shown trailing. But I guess maybe they think that it's going to require something different here. Uh, I don't know. Well, from e- even between Blackburn and Bredesen, though, I mean Bredesen doesn't take many jabs at Blackburn's. In the well, debates. part of it's because of how they've positioned themselves. Dean and, and Bredesen are both sort of supposed to be campaign as the pragmatic, just get results, not a partisan flamethrower type candidate. And so maybe there is maybe it hurts both of those in these kind of debates on, on being able to go on the attack. Yeah, I mean I I agree with you. I think Bredesen just sort of. 
lets a lot of the attacks from Blackburn go unchecked and doesn't really respond that much during his two debates. But, but again, he's supposed to be, he's camp- campaigned as this this person who just wants to talk about the issues and and solve solute solve problems with you know solutions. And yeah. So maybe that kind of hurts him on these sort of settings. And maybe and Dean has had that very similar you know campaign approach. The whole campaign has both try to win as Democrats in a politically red state. Last week was the final uh, series of debates. We had uh, two in the governor's race and then one on the Senate. Uh, For all of our coverage, you can go back and check it out on uh, any of our USA Today Network Properties websites. Um, One thing that I wanted to mention before we end this segment, Joey, uh, you mentioned that I I forgot. uh, There was a whole lot of outside spending by these uh, independent groups on the Senate race. Uh, Take us through kind of the discrepancy of what we've been seeing. Uh, Blackburn's uh, uh, people supporting Blackburn or against Bredesen have vastly outweighed the money yeah. on the other side. Yeah, so this is our first statewide or competitive statewide election since the Citizens United. Uh, of course, case the of landmark U- that US really op- opened up these PACs, super PACs, five hundred one C fours to spend freely in elections. And we haven't had any competitive uh, presidential race here in Tennessee either. So this is the first time we've experienced this kind of level of, of outside spending uh, in this state. There's been about 22, 23 million total, uh, most of it going to TV ads, radio ads, uh, digital as well. Uh, but Blackburn has has gotten, has benefited from 16.5 million from outside groups compared to 6.6 million that have benefited Bredesen. That's about a two and a half to one and, uh, margin. And I just want to clarify, that is both groups that are attacking Bredesen in support of Blackburn or or otherwise yeah, not most of them are about or touting Blackburn. Yeah, about 70% of the spending that has helped Blackburn has gone to attack uh, Bredesen. And all you got to do is you know turn on TV some night, watch a football game, whatever, and you're going to see these various ads. Now, the top 11 groups that have spent money in Tennessee's U.S. Senate, Senate race, 10 of those are helping Blackburn right now. Wow. So the top one is the Senate Leadership Fund. That's the one that's tied to Mitch uh, McConnell. Mitch McConnell. Number two is Majority Forward. This is actually the one pro-Bredesen group on that's the list. That's the one that supposedly has ties right. to Chuck Schumer. So, so McConnell's group has spent, spent – again, these are all going to go up before election day on November 6th. November 6th, but McConnell's group has spent $8.1 million. Schumer's, uh, Schumer's group has spent $5.8 million. Uh, then the next two groups, both over two million, are, are tied to Americans for Prosperity. So they've c- combined over about four and a half million. And then I'll just read off some of these. You have Committee to Defend the President, National Rifle Association, National Republican Senatorial Committee, the uh, Republican Party of Tennessee, Senate Conservatives Fund, and America's PAC. So those are your top ten right there. Again, all but one are uh, supporting Blackburn. And again, I don't know. I mean, look, Bredesen's still gotten a lot of outside spending help as well. And I, but I think if I heading into the race, I would have guessed it to be a little more even 50-50. Yeah. And, yeah. and if you look at some of the other races, it, it is closer sure. to that. But this is the type of spending that are in you know, a lot of the battlegrounds right now, now, whether that might be Florida or West Virginia or Missouri or whatever, that you, you are having the same kind of outside groups bankroll probably i mean these groups are spending more the ads that you see on tv than the actual campaigns uh and that's just uh, the state of politics right now and it's interesting to to look at the the breakdown of these be 
The execution of longtime Tennessee death row inmate Edmund Zagorski was supposed to happen October 11th. We previously mentioned on a recent podcast that Governor Bill Haslam was declining to intervene, but that has since changed. Zagorski was not executed on October 11th, as was planned. We have with us Adam Tamarin. He's our justice reporter who's been following this case. He was scheduled to be the witness that day. He still will be the witness if and when this happens. But Adam, can you tell us what happened? Can you walk us through the legal challenges that led up to this and where we are now? Sure. And uh, thanks for having me, guys. It's, sure. It's a pleasure to know what you guys are talking about in here. Um, <laughs> we're so, glad you're here. So um, basically, um, there were three um, kind of parallel, separate legal challenges going on in the days and hours leading up to um, Edmund Zagorski's scheduled execution on Thursday. So first was uh, the ongoing challenge of the state's lethal injection drugs. Uh, the Tennessee State Supreme Court struck that down, and Zagorski's attorneys sent that to the Supreme Court of the United States to say, hey, can you give us a stay and reconsider so that maybe we can get these lethal injection drugs deemed unconstitutional? That got shot down. Second was uh, his effort to get executed by... Um, the electric chair. Yeah, that was a shock to everyone. Yeah, because he said, you know, he, uh, he, I really believe that these lethal injection drugs are going to lead to torture that's so bad it's unconstitutional. So. Which he's not the only one that has said that, right? There have been multiple people that have weighed in and said, oh, yes, this is, this is, it, right, equates to torture. So Zagorski is one of 32 now living death row inmates who sued the state to say this lethal injection method. Uh, which includes a controversial drug called midazolam, doesn't work as intended. It leads to several minutes, maybe as many as 18 minutes of intense pain that violates the Constitution. Uh, and Zagorski is one of those people. And he, so when the Tennessee Supreme Court said, we're looking at this, we're looking at the expert testimony, and we don't think you have a case here, um, Zagorski said, fine. And, and did they not say the Constitution doesn't guarantee you a pain-free death? Wasn't that also what yeah. some of the judges came out and said? So there, there was a lot of um, wrangling there, but basically the, they kind of set aside the issue of whether or not this causes excruciating torture-like pain. And they said, part of what you have to do if you're going to say that you're challenging this method is give an alternative that the state can feasibly um, pursue. Meaning and, you, the recipient of this. Right. The death row inmates who were about to get executed had to find for the state a better way to execute them that would be less painful, that would be constitutional. And, and the, in the case of Irik, didn't they suggest the firing squad? Wasn't that? I think that was up in the That table. was, um, that was a, a, gr a smaller group of death row inmates have suggested that as an alternative in uh, federal court, and that case is still pending. So we'll see where that goes. Um, but essentially... Uh, the state Supreme Court said, you know what, it doesn't matter how painful this is. Medical experts have said it's akin to feeling like you're being buried alive and burning from the inside at the same time mm -hmm. for as, as long as 18 minutes. The Supreme Court, Tennessee Supreme Court said it doesn't matter. Zagorski's um, attorneys, in a last-ditch effort to prevent his, uh, his uh, execution from going forward, appealed to the, Supreme, the U.S. Supreme Court. They didn't want to get involved. And so secondarily, we have this challenge in federal court where Zagorski's saying, well, fine, I don't want, I don't believe in the lethal injection system. I believe I will be tortured to death. I'd rather have the electric chair. The state tried to say, we don't have enough time. We have a two-week window 
that we need to prepare if you choose the electric chair. So we're not ready to do that. We're still going to execute you using lethal injection drugs. And then the judge in that federal lawsuit that came up in the days before uh, Zagorski was set to be executed, the judge said, state of Tennessee, stop. You cannot execute this man using lethal injection drugs until I've had have heard the case and decided if that is necessary. And and so that was kind of the dramatic trigger that led to what else? The governor way. Yeah, I mean I that. think that was the tipping point. There was a third um legal prong that got a stay in the US Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals which was later struck down. But I think that federal case um, about the electric chair was the tipping point for Haslam. Hmm. Uh, I that's certainly the impression I've gotten was that he was monitoring these things, and when the order came down from the federal judge on Thursday saying, "Wait, if you're going to execute this guy, you can't use lethal injection." That's when Haslam, I think, decided to step in and say, "All right, I'm going to issue this 10-day reprieve." It uh, is a technical 10-day reprieve, so it might be very well, but it'll be longer than 10 days before we, he ended up getting executed. But he's the point of this reprieve was to say, okay, I'm going to step in here, be the voice of reason. If this guy wants to choose the electric chair, which is his right under law, if you're convicted of a crime from before 99 um, and sentenced to death for that crime, you can choose the electric chair. And Haslam said, I'm going to step in, put a 10-day pause on this thing, give the prison officials time to prepare and practice using the electric chair, and then we'll let it go forward from there. Yeah, I mean, that seems like a pretty high stakes thing to kind of screw around with if you don't know how to use an electric chair. But isn't there something that says that they have to regularly use or or at least uh, uh, practice with the electric chair like multiple times a week or something like that? Yeah. And there are different times kind of cited in court filings in this case that have been going back and forth at really rapid fire pace. If I have big bags under my eyes, that's why I've been trying to keep up to date with all these filings. But um, basically... Um, the state in its own electrocution protocol says we're going to practice this once every quarter and we're going to test the machinery once every quarter. So practice the protocol, practice what it's like to put somebody in the electric chair and, and how that process goes. But also, um, they use a volunteer, but they don't, they don't, obviously they don't turn on the, um, the chair while someone's in there, but they do test the mechanics as well. Adam, uh, how historic would this be if Zagorski ends up being electrocuted? It, it would be uh, the third um, death by electrocution the state has sanctioned since 1960. So we had one person die by electrocution in 1960, and then one person, uh, an inmate in 2007, decided to um, opt for uh, the electric chair. And, and that's nation- the last time. nationwide, uh, when was the last time we saw? 2013. So Tennessee would be kind of bringing back this this piece of equipment that kind of a lot of people thought was in the past. And I'm wondering now what happens for the other inmates if the state moves forward with more and more um, executions, if the inmates in this lawsuit, the 32 living inmates in this lawsuit, believe they're facing a surely torturous death through lethal injection, will they make the same choice Sigorsky's made? What happens now after uh, this 10-day period ends? What what could be the p- possible resolutions? Right. So um, I have become uh, kind of well-versed in a, a little nook of the Supreme Court rules that I never thought I'd ever read. Um, it's fun being a reporter, guys. Um, so Zagorski was set to be executed on October 11th. The 10-day reprieve kicks in. So that is up on October 21st, which is a Sunday. 
but that doesn't mean he's going to be executed on a Sunday. It means that on October 21st, the Tennessee Supreme Court has the option of coming in and setting a new execution date. I would imagine probably they'll wait till Monday and do that then. They can only set an execution date that is seven days away. So if they come in on October 22nd, which is that Monday after the reprieve has been lifted, and say, okay, we're setting an execution date. The soonest they can do that is the 29th. So I believe what we're looking at is the week of October 29th having an execution. The Attorney General's office has already filed a briefing with the um, state Supreme Court saying, we have no reason to delay anymore. We're ready to go. They gave indications that prison officials are preparing to use the electric chair. Uh, And so I think we will be um, seeing that in the state of Tennessee uh, in a couple weeks. And Adam will be leading the coverage on that. Keep following his Twitter account at Adam Tambrin. Oh, no. It's at Tambrin Tweets now. At Tambrin Tweets. <laughs> you know I love whimsy. And- oh, I'm so sorry. We'll follow him. He's going to keep everyone updated. He will, again, be our media witness inside of the execution. And Natalie's going to provide assistance on that And I well. will be standing outside the prison door, and Adam will come out, and he will have to take part in a press conference about it. So uh, just keep an eye on, on the Tennessean for updates in the case. Thanks for coming on, Adam. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. As usual, we'll wrap up the show with our weekly notebook dump. First off, Phil Bredesen's campaign benefited from a uh, an appearance by a former DEA uh, Drug Enforcement Administration agent uh, who essentially said that Marsha Blackburn's co-sponsorship of legislation that sort of neutered, is what he's saying, neutered the DEA's ability uh, to crack down on suspicious shipments. Uh, uh, Bredesen essentially had an ad featuring this agent. So that was a new development recently. Yeah, also the uh, a state panel in Mississippi denied uh, a Tennessee, the Tennessee Democratic Party's uh, uh, appeal to release uh, Marsha Blackburn's congressional papers that are, stored, that are stored at her alma mater, Mississippi State University. This is not a, a surprise. Democrats had, from, from Tennessee, led by Mark Brown, an aide, had been trying to retrieve those and file public records requests, but Mississippi State denied, and now a state panel has affirmed that uh, by denying his appeal, and so the Democrats will not be able to sift through these records prior to the uh, election. After some question of if and when Bill Lee would come in for the Tennessean USA Today Network editorial board interview, he did come in and he mostly touted his business experience, but you can read more of our coverage there. Uh, This was a couple weeks after Dean Blackburn and Bredesen had all come in to be interviewed. And in a sign that the uh, Democratic Governors Association thinks they can still make a play in Tennessee in the governor's race, they recently bankrolled an ad uh, helping Carl Dean that goes after uh, Bill Lee for his stance on Medicaid expansion, like Dean has throughout the campaign, it highlights the closures of nine uh, rural hospitals uh, in recent years. And that ad, that negative ad against Bill Lee, funded by the DGA, is playing right now. Speaking of hospital closures being featured in ads, Carl Dean's campaign put out an ad a couple weeks ago um, talking about how Medicaid, the failure to expand Medicaid 
it has caused rural hospitals to close in Tennessee. That ad pulled from a News Channel 5 story highlighting nine hospitals that have closed in Tennessee. We took a look at whether all of those have closed. We found that three of those communities have either experienced a hospital merger, change of ownership, um, or change their names, but actually still have fully operational inpatient facilities. Two of those hospitals um, have stopped offering inpatient facilities, but still actually do provide 24-hour emergency rooms and outpatient services. And finally, rounding out this week, Mark Norris, the Senate Majority Leader here in the state legislature, was confirmed as a federal judge by the U.S. Senate recently. Norris, of course, uh, was uh, known for his work on this refugee resettlement resolution to order the state to sue the federal government over the issue. Norris will soon have to resign from his seat. Uh, Timing of it is a little bit uncertain, and it appears that he will do so after the November 6th election, which would then cause a special election to be held to to find Norris's replacement. As we wrap up this week, just a quick reminder, of course, early voting begins uh, on October 17th and continues through November 1st. You can find profiles of all the candidates that are running for various offices on our websites, uh, the USA Today Network websites. This podcast, Grand Divisions, is produced by John Garcia. We never give John credit, but we should. We're so sorry, John. (laughs) So we're going to from here on out. Of course, Grand Divisions is released every Tuesday. You can find us on iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts. Please continue to rate us and leave reviews. It helps give our uh, iTunes juice a little bit of a boost. And finally, if you want to email us ideas and suggestions, uh, send them to to us uh, so we can uh, implement uh, any ideas or plans that you have. Um, Wrapping up this week, I'm Joel Ebert, and you can reach me at joelebert29 on Twitter. I'm Joey Garrison. My Twitter handle is Joey Garrison as well as at Joey Garrison. One word. Do you need to spell it for us or anything? That's uh, J-O-E-Y Garrison. Uh, That's Garrison, not Harrison. And I'm Natalie Allison. That would be at Natalie, N-A-T-A-L-I-E underscore A-L-L-I-S-O-N. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.